1: Hey, this is
0: Emma, Senior Account Manager at the Webby Awards. The 24th Annual Webby Awards is open for entries. We have all new categories this year for your work in podcasts, social, immersive and mixed reality video, and much more. Check out all the categories and enter by the early entry deadline on Friday, October 25th to take advantage of the best pricing. Enter your work at webbyawards.com.
1: From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Democracy always dies in darkness. Facebook, please don't end democracy. Access to sources, not power. Stop and smell the data. Hey there, and welcome back. If you haven't had a chance to watch The Great Hack on Netflix yet, you really should. It tells the -the behind-the-scenes story of Cambridge Analytica, the company that collected information on more than 85 million American voters through Facebook and shared it with the Trump 2016 campaign. They used the data to make more than five million different visual political ads on Facebook. By contrast, the Hillary Clinton campaign, who didn't have that data, made just 66,000. The Great Hack can be pretty dark. It shows how vulnerable our personal information is to theft and nefarious uses, but the saddest parts of the film are the human stories. Once responsible and law-abiding members of society become so consumed with greed and power that they can launch and market an operation like Cambridge Analytica with little regret. Today's guest, on the other hand, is part of the story that can give us some hope. David Carroll is an associate professor of media design at Parsons School of Design and is one of the main subjects of The Great Hack. David's been an advocate for data privacy for many years and, as we discover in the documentary, initiates a type of UK freedom of information request with a network of privacy activists that leads to the eventual downfall, exposure, and bankruptcy of Cambridge Analytica. We start off talking about how he got involved in instigating UK legal actions against Cambridge Analytica. I
0: was one of the few Americans who was... Kind of worried about privacy issues long before this stuff blew up, and for example, back when ad blocking was a sort of moral panic, it yeah. seems like so long ago. But there was a time in like 2014, everyone's freaking out because Apple enabled ad blockers in iPhone, basically, and. It was like, the sky is falling. And I was saying, it's not just annoying ads. I think that people are also have anxiety about their privacy and the data collection. And the industry laughed at me and nobody cares about their privacy. This is a joke. But I said, no, I think it's going to blow up in your faces someday. So because I was vocal about this, I attracted the interest of some European researchers and scholars who right after the election in 2016, they were really looking for an American to do what I did, Hmm. recruit somebody to do it. Because it had to be a US citizen, a registered voter, and had to make the request through to the company in the United Kingdom. It started out just like a test, like,
1: will this work? And if it does work, what will it mean? So it's almost like sometimes you hear in the United States about... You know they're recruiting people for a Supreme Court case or something like that. They're trying to find like the ideal plaintiff. So it's almost something similar to that that they were looking for somebody from the U.S. who could do this, and you had this background in this. And
0: yeah, I was receptive to the issues right. and sort of would volunteer to do it and understood what was at play here. So the yeah. researcher convinced me. He's in the film Paul Olivier Dehay. Uh, he's Belgian, but he's based in Switzerland, and he's been looking at the way these laws work and has been. Prying data out of a lot of tech companies for years, whether it be Facebook, Uber, Adobe, he's been really good at using the European law to to collect his own personal data. So, and for him, is it
1: a hobby or is it a part of his? Is it a job or is he a professor or something? Or was, it was
0: it check? was similar. Started out research, but then he's an entrepreneur because uh, he has a, a company that helps people do these requests. Okay. So yeah, so he was looking for somebody. He gave me advice on how to do it. In January 2017, I filled out the form, basically, and immediately found interesting evidence that came back that indicated, you know, some of the hypothesis was going to come true. And we followed through. And then in March, received um, some data for in 2017. So, you know, more
1: than a year before the scandal became international headlines. So they they actually did comply with some of it. They sent you something back.
0: It did. So it was interesting that they acknowledged that, yes, the British law would apply in the Uh U.S. election, and that, yes, they were a British company, and that, yes, U.S. voter data was processed in the U.K. And how strange that was, and what else would that indicate? But then when I posted it to Twitter, which was just my instinct at the time, like, oh, this is really interesting. we should, I'll just post it. Uh, It got the attention then of Other academics who saw it were like, oh yeah, that's not legal. You need a lawyer, a British lawyer, and they called them solicitors there. And I didn't even know the difference between a solicitor and a barrister when I got into all this. So I had no concept of British law at all. And I only knew US law just, you know, from my own experience as trying to be a business person. I was not a lawyer. I have no law degree. It just was like, all just an experiment
1: that turned out to be fruitful right and, away. And so for our listeners who haven't seen the film, essentially, the idea of the hypothesis beforehand was that Cambridge Analytica had gotten, we can get into what that means in a second in sort of more detail there, but had gotten lots and lots of data on Americans through Facebook in ways which were at the very least unethical, if not illegal. And you were filing this suit because they have a law in Britain allowing you to get information that any, any company has information on you you can find out what it was. And by getting something, it showed, therefore, that they had something that they weren't supposed to have, right?
0: Yes, uh, that's a good s- summary of it. And it really showed that the European laws have rights that we don't have in the U.S. Another part of the hypothesis was if the company was just an American company and it never exported our data out of the United States, then they could have ignored the request and they had no obligation to comply. So in the weirdness of them using an international exchange, Mm -hmm. uh, they opened up this loophole and it was interesting to poke at it and there was much to see once we started poking at it. And indeed even though it's about me and my data that's the only right i had to get my own data but what it also indicates is that every registered voter in the united states had a cambridge analytica file it was not just limited to whether you were one of the people who had your data harvested on facebook right it was all of us
1: by having like some finite amount of people's data harvested they were then able to use AI, I assume, or whatever, to create profiles around everybody who might look like these people or be similar to them or something like that, right?
0: So the if you think about it, the numbers this way, so there are about 200 million registered voters in the US, mm. and they Facebook says that about 87 million users were harvested, and we know that 30 million of the 87 million were matched to voters. Mm. So then you had a 30 million sample of the 200 million total matched Facebook users to voters. And they used a, a statistical data science model from the 30 million right. to apply to the rest of us. So right. in that sense, all of us had this profile created, and we didn't even need to be a victim of the Facebook mm. data breach to have it impact our profile.
1: Yeah. So how does this tie back into the work that you do or were doing at Parsons? Is this stuff that you're teaching, you know, this kind of issues or these things you're teaching your students as part of, like, the coursework?
0: Yeah, so I teach in the Design and Technology graduate program and so a lot of our students go off to work in this industry whether it be working at the big tech companies, working at agencies, doing their own startups or other, you know, really related things. So uh, it's always been an interest of mine and then I do teach a class uh, on these topics, a class called Dark Data which looks at specifically mm. the way that data is a big part of design now, whether it be you know, if you're in UX, you're going to be building these data infrastructures. If you are in data visualization, obviously you're directly using it. Data journalism, you're using it. And even if you're just, you know, in the business, your business can be increasingly driven by data collection and data analysis. So the kind of ethics of analytics becomes quite central to the designer UX technologist's job. Mm. So it it sort of is the course where students go to develop this sense of values and ethics around these important issues.
1: To me, it sounds like exciting and that like you're teaching this thing and on some level it's theoretical. Of course, you're going to be basing on real world and stuff, but now you're, you're like really in the middle of like the biggest real world example of this ever. Where did it go from there? So I tweeted it and then legal experts said,
0: you're not, that's not legal. You need a lawyer. Then I found my lawyer, Robbie Naik who is also in the film. And we started working on the case and we went through various steps. Uh, so for example, one thing we did is in July of 2017, actually on July 4th, Independence Day, I filed a formal complaint with the UK information commissioner and essentially boiled down to like, why is this British company interfering in my democracy? But more particularly is we have asked them for more disclosure on the data. We've asked them questions. They're ignoring us. They're obliged by law to respond. That complaint later yielded the criminal conviction of the company. That is the only time that the company has faced any criminal penalties. It was because they ignored the regulator at the end of the day. They just Mm. ignored their order completely. And it's a criminal offense to ignore the right. data, the data cops. So that's where it ended. And it was an interesting example of like, even just simple things like file and complaint with the
1: right authority in the particular situation can yield a glimpse of justice. One thing that kind of comes up in the film, it seems and it's sort of touching on is, and you talked a bit about there a second ago is just that you were able to do this because the company was in Britain in British law and you were here. But if they had been here You would have had no recourse, essentially, right? And that's essentially because the laws that happen to exist in the UK are stronger, more consumer-oriented around data than the ones that are here. Yes. Having – I don't know if you have an insight into this or not, but having spent some time doing this, do you think that that's – is that cultural or is it accidental? Like, did you come to find that, that Europeans and people in the UK care about this stuff more than people in the U.S.? So I think it's an
0: accident of history because the EU is a relatively new political structure. And so it has a charter and the right to have your data protected is in the EU charter. Mm. And this is alongside other fundamental rights, like the right of free speech and the right to marry and just like such basic fundamental things. So the law that we use in the UK is from 1998. So some countries are 25 years old and so they came with the formation of the EU mm. and there's been now a 20 year long infrastructure and regime built up in the countries around Europe so they have these muscular regulators, we don't even have the equivalent of them we have the FTC that handles this, but these are dedicated mm. authorities that have done prosecutions and built up case law and stuff, so it was a different situation completely. And so in that sense, the U.S. doesn't have a fundamental right of data protection. We don't even use that term very much, data protection. We tend to use the word privacy, which is a pretty squishy word that doesn't really mean much. Whereas because they have this right that's in the charter and it's like embedded in the law and it's prosecuted, they see more of it as this is a rights issue and your right can be defined. You either have a right or you don't. It can be defended or it isn't. It's quite a useful way of looking at it where mm-hmm. i think our insistence on using the word privacy is part of what's holding us back because nobody
1: even agrees on what that means and that there's something about like what are you trying to hide that you need to be so right it has like a some like weird cultural thing about it that's like a discussion around what should be or shouldn't be private as opposed to just what you should have a right to have an own versus not have an own, I guess.
0: Yeah, and it seems really reasonable that your data should be protected Mm. if it's going to be used in certain ways. So it makes a lot of sense to me. I really admired the system. And once I started to use it, I saw how important it was.
1: In the film, there's like all these other characters that start kind of layering in. We start meeting some of the people at Cambridge Analytica, um, some of the whistleblowers, so-called whistleblowers. Some of them people have seen in media appearance before. Some of them were kind of new are you like in real time paying attention to all these actors and these people coming out and, and everything you must've been, right?
0: Yeah. Once you, you know, because I discovered this stuff pretty early on and I had fallen down the so-called rabbit hole pretty deep. So I was figuring out as much as I could about all this stuff and all these characters. So when they started to become public, I, I, I knew who they were and I was excited and fascinated by, you know, the, the, Only a couple people have have come forward, but it's been fascinating to see the reaction to them and see the evidence that they put forward and to have all those documents in the public view, verify a lot of the things that people were worried about. And um, they, specifically Chris Wiley and Brittany Kaiser, have put documents into the public domain that have made us all feel very validated that this whole thing was worth pursuing. Like some some of us, you know, were dismissed early on as, oh, you're just chasing a conspiracy theory. There's nothing here. It's just snake oil. It's just a scam. It's just salesmanship. You're barking up this tree. But when the legal things followed through and when the whistleblowers put forth documents, it showed that we were right to be worried about this.
1: Have you come to any sort of like conclusion or thinking about why all these people did this i didn't really get the sense that there was this like overwhelming values based were hardcore republican trump supporters at least from the people that are interviewed
0: it's a mix of things but uh you know the the first weirdness was just that there's these basic they basically british aristocrats who are working in elections around the world including the united states election and so to them it's like a power play it's almost like a form of new kind of colonialism, like why are these why are these rich British people thinking they can muck around in everybody's election? So some of it's just that, like just mm. p- playing with power. Some of it's just opportunist business opportunism. They're just, they see a business opportunity. They're trying to make money. Some of it also is the seductive allure of a data-driven practice. That is, you're just driven by measurements and it's very satisfying to do A and see measurement B and do A and see measurement B. And just like, I think the, some of the characters reflected upon how the power of using data to change behavior is a powerful feeling. And it's very satisfying because you get these measurements, whereas some other kind of work, you don't get such a direct measurement of it. And so you have to have more faith in what you're doing. So. I think it's all of the above. It's a lot of different factors. There certainly were ideological fa- factors at play, meaning um, you know the family that funded Cambridge Analytica uh, is a huge donor in Republican sure. causes, and Steve Bannon, who helped set up Cambridge Analytica, is definitely an ideological person
1: who has a you know a, a, polit- yeah. a he political had a, a project, clear desire, a clear reason for doing it. I, and I guess if you're like a, I guess if you're a data scientist or like a data nerd, it's like the most exciting problem, no matter what side you're on, right? That's exactly. sort of what you're saying. It's like a very exciting thing to the volume of data and the impact it can have, and
0: and the increase of the technology from cycle to cycle. So mm-hmm. if we think about like what technology was available in the previous campaigns, and four years is quite a long time in technology. Mm-hmm. And eight years is like an eternity. So just the fascination with political technology itself as like, you know, sure, we can take the same things that we used to sell skin creams and ski vacations. And we can sell politics with Mm. the same exact tools and get the same kind of measurement and feedback and
1: attribution. I think that was very seductive and still is for a, a lot of people. How technically sophisticated would you say at the end of the day rate the operation? Like, because I think that it feels like to the layman or people from far away that's like, wow, these really smart people got hold of this crazy data and they went into some magic box and they did some things and they totally got Trump elected.
0: For the average person, it seems like a hugely sophisticated operation because for many people, it's an entry into a world that they had no idea about. So it seems like it's a big deal. Whereas for people who are in the advertising industry or political technology industry, it's not impressive at all because mm. it's just standard practice. It's just how everything works. So I think that gap between the general public being educated, blown away, deeply disturbed about what they've learned, and then the industry being like, "We, this is everywhere. Why are you guys upset? I think that's the, the, the gap between those understandings, which is really in, in, interesting, actually. Mm. Um, in terms of what they did, they just used, you know, what was off the shelf and what is widely done anyway. And they pushed the boundary of what was ethical and legal to have a potentially a competitive advantage. Um, but, you know, basically was take voter files, buy data from data brokers, match those up. Uh, by uh, other uh, data, including the data that they got around Facebook. So it's not just about then like assembling these profiles, but then deploying them in campaigns. So people don't tend to realize that campaigns can then upload your voter files right into Facebook and target you by name as a Facebook user and other ways that then you can use retargeting to then follow you around on every website, every device you use, because your email address can be a key to retarget you across pl- platforms. So yeah. again, like the industry knows you can do this. The ordinary person has no idea that they can be individually targeted and retargeted and tracked to the extent that's possible. And so again, like the Cambridge Analytica story showed the industry how
1: poorly the general public understands right. what is done. It's almost like the the really incredible sophistication wasn't the data but was in the really bizarrely distorted use of creativity to come up with all the ways to message the people like the the whole idea of trying to get people to protest and get other people to a counter protest to stir up like a big fight is like a very creative in a very sort of bad way, but it's that's kind of almost like where the Oh my like when I at least for me personally, that was sort of like the wow moment was like, who thinks of things like this, you know?
0: Yeah, when these technologies are used to advance, you know, pretty cynical, almost diabolical plans that are really, you know, think doing literally like like intentionally weaponizing apathy as a strategy. You know, it's like negative campaigning times a thousand. It's, It's not just, you know, blanketing the airways with negative campaign ads but it's being really tactical and precise and manipulating the characters and qualities of particular groups so it's 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 a combination of you know what happens when we go from mass marketing to hyper targeted campaigning but it's also you know being able to use the tools in ways that people don't don't, don't expect so like an, an example is the official Trump and Pence Facebook pages had one set of messages that would be on the page for public consumption, and then another set of messages that were for targeted people who they paid to show promoted responses to. And when you compare the messages for the paid targeted ones that were only seen to precise sets of people, they were much more negative and misleading and b- b- bending the truth, it had a different voice basically than mm. the public facing one and you can there was evidence there that they were exploiting the targeting to create messages that they knew a tiny percentage of people would see, and so they could be more nasty, toxic,
1: truthless than other- otherwise. so the abuse of the targeting. Mm to create. Because you can't do that in a world where everybody looks at it because it'll be offensive and people call you out on it. But if you can limit the really negative stuff to only and then be able to deny it because you have the public thing. Exactly. Yeah, it's very sinister. In the film, you talk effectively about your daughter, how you became very interested in privacy as a way of protecting her from all of this stuff. And it sort of ends up being a little bit about what we're discussing here, which is the regular people's understanding of how all this works in industries and you sort of, that's sort of a foil for you, right? Like going through that process of now starting to read the terms and conditions of apps she might use and stuff like that was educating for you.
0: It's hard because (laughs) she doesn't want to have to deal with these restrictions and limits. So, you know, I'm glad she's now seen the film so she can better understand, um, you know, why She's stuck with this stuff, but you know then it's learning like how to talk to your kids about these issues in in a way that they can appreciate, and in some ways, the law has been the most helpful tool as a parent to mm-hmm. justify these things. So, for example, you know we already talked to our kids about how the law sets rules outside of the family, so you know you have to be sixteen to drive and eighteen to vote and twenty one to drink, and in the u s the ch- children's privacy law protects the privacy of kids under 13 so then 13 becomes this milestone in which like you become kind of an adult online and and the way that can be translated in sort of family policy is like when you're 13 you can create your own accounts but right. before you're 13 you can't have your own accounts because the law is sort of provisioned that way and and then they can get it and it's like okay you know it's you know it's like Driving and voting and drinking. Like it's a milestone, a rite of passage. So that's been a helpful uh, tool. But, you know, there are other questions that are harder, like, you know, how to deal with YouTube and the pernicious aspects of of YouTube. So I think, you know, it's a challenge that parents
1: face now and there aren't a lot of tools out there for us. What did you learn going through like sort of being more Scrutinizing, Not to say that you probably weren't scrutinizing me before, but it just seemed like from the film that, you know, you had dug deeper into, like, what the terms and conditions of these things say and being more – you sort of paid more attention to all these things.
0: Right. So, like, for example, as a parent, you really waive the protections of privacy law if you make an account for your kid because mm-hmm. what you're basically saying is, okay, now I've given – the permission to tr- track my kids' data and 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 do, do everything. So it really puts the onus on the parent to say not until you're 13 because once you do that, you waive your protections. Putting your kids' data on there is a difficult thing for parents because parents want to share their kids. They yeah. want to brag about them. And then
1: what have they done without knowing and understanding by doing so? At the end of the film, there's like those little – you know, the very satisfying little titles that come up and tell us how the story ended that they didn't show. And it says that the guy who was responsible for all of this stuff, who's named Brad Parscale, that he's now the Trump 2020 campaign manager. And from this, I think we're supposed to, we're to imply the question I'm going to ask you, which is, is there anything in place for this to not just absolutely just happen all over again?
0: Nothing's been done to prevent what happened in 2016 from happening again. Um, so we have to be prepared for the same and worse, more sophisticated um, ed, uh, developments. Um, it goes further than that. Like the, this guy, uh, Matt Oskowski, was the director of product at Cambridge Analytica. When the company folded, he started his own company called Data Propria. And that is a subsidiary of Pascal's company. So, you know, some of the same people are working for the campaign. It just has a different name. So, there's that too. So, the same, everything they learned will be advanced moving forward. The only thing that's different is that Facebook and some of the other platforms have released what is called the Ads Library. And so you can now search for political ads, and you can see all the ads of a campaign. So it addresses what we were talking about before, where you have ads that only people who are targeted can see, the so-called dark ads. Mm. So there's some transparency that Facebook has put put forth, which helps us to see what the campaign is doing. It creates some transparency. It probably has a deterrent effect. That's all been voluntary, just sort of Facebook trying to get
1: ahead of Washington, D.C. regulators. But that's easy to do. I think they said in the film that it was like they made 6 million different ads on the Trump campaign. Yes. And in theory, some of those were really, really – I mean, I'm sure a lot of them were bad. But some of those were very, very bad. In theory, maybe they'll make less because they'll be, they won't want the the scrutiny of people coming in and seeing how awful they are being. Yes. And,
0: and reporters are already looking at right. the ads and writing stories about, about them and reporting ads that are violating Facebook's own policy mm-hmm. even. So that kind of scrutiny – is good yeah. that it's happening this this time around.
1: So, I think we can probably agree that it's not like Congress is going to fix this problem this year. If it gets fixed through law, it'll take a very long time. Let's just say that. Do you think that there's like a non-legal solution to this? Like something that's not dependent on forming laws, but more cultural or protest driven or, you know, is there a movement that can do an anti-hack or is there things that people can do or groups people can do together yeah i think there's a big awareness
0: and reaction to the story and even specifically the film the great hack which shows that people really do care about this and they're thinking more thoughtfully about it so i think there's a lot of awareness and interest in the topic despite our behavior that suggests that we we'll look look at what we do we don't care about our privacy as what we really do and the the paradox between our behavior versus our feelings and and what we consider important. So there is that, but it's the kind of thing because it is rights driven at the end of the day that there really is a legal solution that is the bedrock of other non-legal solutions. So the idea of, you know, having the transparency, for example, creates a deterrent effect up the, up the chain. So, I think the key thing to think about is how just winning the right to know in the United States to make us equivalent to Europe in that respect would be a huge step forward would be a fundamental right that I think people would appreciate it would it would change practices that are unhealthy in the industry and would have a deterrent effect to keep bad actors and bad behavior out of the system. So it's a pretty simple thing mm. and the California Consumer Privacy Act introduces this right to know and that passed and that's coming into effect in January. So there's interesting things happening at the state level,
1: and and that will have a big effect because California is such a big state that it'll just be too annoying for a lot of places to like run different platforms for like they won't want a set of rules for California and a set of rules for the rest of the country. So, yep. right
0: there's precedent that way that California has set the emission standard for the automobile industry. That mm-hmm. a way, I, like a state law in a big economy like uh, California can. It's like it doesn't make sense to make a car that you can't drive in California. So they end up being the highest standard for an industry. So there's a chance that that'll play a role in the data economy. And it's good that so many of the companies are based in California uh, for the jurisdictional issues there. So I think that's a step in the right direction. And then interestingly, the senator from California, Senator Feinstein, has proposed what she calls the Voter Privacy Act. And it specifically solves the problem of Cambridge Analytica because it would give voters rights to their voter profiles and the remedies that you would need related to that. And that's specific to voter privacy. And I think that's exciting to show that there's at least one lawmaker who's willing to say that lawmakers need to limit their own ability Mm -hmm. to use these technologies and
1: platforms to get elected and stay in power. What can the platforms do beyond what they've done here by making the ads library available? Is there other stuff that they should be doing? Well, they've done things already because of the European law. So for example, most
0: platforms, you can download your data by digging into the settings and you can you know get your Facebook data, your Twitter data, your LinkedIn data, and they built those systems to become compliant with the GDPR, which re- requires it. So in that way, Europe is having a positive effect mm. on the whole in, in industry by just giving them an incentive to bake these things right into the platforms. But more transparency would be good because I think what the film also shows is there's a huge asymmetry of power and information. That is, advertisers get all the privacy and we get none. And we know this because of how easy it is to run untraceable, unattributable Ad campaigns, which nobody knows who's responsible for them, that is privacy, mm. and um, hmm. and so um, there's an imbalance that I basically think that advertisers should get much less privacy, and the rest of us should get more. It's not you know the the genies out of the bottle. We're never going back to the way it was, but there's just such an asymmetry, and I think a little recalibration would go a long way to making it harder for bad actors to exploit the system.
1: before Cambridge Analytica, where we, like, everybody just fell asleep and decided we didn't care about this stuff anymore? Was there some other big thing that happened? And I, I guess I ask that because whenever people ask us here at the Webbies about these things, I think the standard thing that we have always seen is that almost always, almost always, people will give it away if it makes like finding out the directions on Google Maps faster or makes it easier to click on something to get it delivered to your house. Whatever that internet service is that people love and you know find very convenient and useful, they will almost always give away their personal information to get it.
0: Yeah, I mean, some of it is that we just don't understand the implications of doing so, it's intentionally made difficult for us to understand. What research shows is when people, for example, understand how ad targeting actually works, they don't like it. Hmm. It's for, like one experiment has people draw a diagram of how they think the ads are t- targeted, and then they they don't get it right, and then they're taught how it works. And then once they finally are able to draw the diagram of how it actually works, their sentiment about it drops off, <laughs> off the cliff. So some of this is just about like being able to comprehend how it works. Yeah. Um, but I think some watershed moments were when both Google and Facebook finally decided they need to have a business model. And yeah. they already had massive market share and they had to create ad products out of the existing relationship and data that there was already in place. So, you know, Google came up with AdWords for search terms and Facebook figured out that there was all this data to create a ad targeting system that would rival anything else. So in some ways a lot of people like signed up for these platforms as utilities first and then they became ad platforms mm, later. Right. So we have to remember that and remember that nobody negotiated that deal and the key idea of all these services is there's no negotiation in the deal it's take it or leave it in every single case. And so It's been a series of us and the industry making these deals without any negotiating power. If you think about the way that publishers have been, you know, negotiating or not negotiating rather with the platforms um, while their revenues have steadily been eroded as the platforms profit from content creators work. And the deal is you get distribution. We get the data you get the traffic and the deal was never negotiated there either. So it's ultimately like a question of just accumulation of power and Mm. do the platforms have
1: so much power that they are beyond the reach of government. There's something also American about the problem. It's not to say that Europeans like are perfect and whatever, but they definitely care about it more. It's really just like a much more ingrained part of like culturally. I think there is definitely
0: like a deference in the United States to business and to, especially homegrown businesses. So because we feel that these platforms were born and bred on American corn, you know, that they are. Maybe we'd
1: be more skeptical if they were from South America or something.
0: Yeah, potentially. I mean, there's there's something to be said about sort of the nationalistic sentiment Mm. and deference to these companies and the idea that like Brussels – is the place where these companies get regulated because it's certainly not happening in washington dc mm-hmm. so but there are, there are cultural things at play too like the way that germany has a very strong data protection regime and muscular enforcement and it's because you know that's a nation which has lived under a surveillance state and people are still alive that remember that kind of living under a police state and and the, the slippery slope of surveillance so you know that's a reality too but then you know even subtle things like in paris for example there are no surveillance cameras that are pointed out to the street they have to be pointed into the door so when you're walking around in paris you know there actually is not the same kind of private surveillance that there is just walking around in in new york or neighborhoods in the suburbs where everyone has mm-hmm. now a, a, a ring camera so there are nuances to the cultural attitudes around data and and they they use different words so for them in the united states we have this idea that privacy is the right to be left alone which comes from sort of like castle doctrine and private property and like privacy is is an expression of that Mm. whereas the cultural idea of privacy in europe is more about dignity and that being able to have your privacy protected is to because of their need to have this human dignity so I do definitely think there are these deep cultural DNA mechanisms that have come from many years and they are animating the attitudes about technology and and these issues. And I think Americans are changing their attitudes because we're starting to observe harms. And I think we're getting to this idea that it's closer to like pollution and climate change. That is like by not caring about privacy it's harming our collective identity because of all the data leaking all over the place mm-hmm. or you know the fact that you know Equifax is hacked and all of our data and you know, sensitive data social security numbers are just like circulating we are getting a sense that that reckless anything goes wild west just don't regulate tech because tech needs to be fr- unregulated to innovate That doesn't seem to be a sustainable position and realization that every industry ultimately gets regulated. It's hard to think of an industry that's not regulated except for the tech in an industry.
1: David Carroll, thank you so much for joining us on the Webby Podcast. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Thanks so much to David for stopping by the studio and for speaking with us. And thank you for all his work on the big Cambridge Analytica story. The Great Hack is currently available on Netflix if you haven't seen it yet. If you like the Webby podcast and want to support it, take a couple of seconds and give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you really like it and want to go to the Extra Mile, leave us a review. For more information about the Webby Awards, visit webbyawards.com, that's webbyawards.com, or on social platforms at the Webby Awards. As always, you can reach me on social at DMD Likes. Our producer is Terrence Brosnan. Our editorial lead is Jordana Jarrett. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is a good toast in a friendly London pub. I'm your host, David Michelle Davies, and this is the Webby Podcast.